And we really had a great time, too, last night at the Three Strands Couples Ministry. Uh, it's the third Saturday evening of every month, 7 p.m. It's just a great teaching and a time to get together with other couples and really look at marriage the way uh, the Lord designed it. So we had a great turnout and a great time. Today we're going to be in Matthew 24. We're going to be, the third, we're going to be doing the third portion, the third part of a three-part series in Matthew 24. Now, the last time we covered the second part or the middle part, and today we're going to finish up the chapter. Last Sunday, I went a little long, uncharacteristic of what we do here. However, there just was so much information. I mean, there's so much convincing proofs that the Bible, 2,000, 3,000, you keep going back all these years, predicts the cultures of today, predicts the technology, predicts, prophesies of uh, world powers that get together and align themselves in battles and you know, I just kept going and going and going. I mean, it just was mind-blowing. So there was a lot of information last Sunday. Uh, today, we're going to uh, finish up. But remember this, too. When the disciples walked with Christ, you know, Matthew 24 was a teaching. He spoke to them privately about the end times. And they had, even before his crucifixion, they, he, they had a few more days with him to ask him a million questions 24-7. They were with him. Uh, however, I'm trying to give you in a 35 to 40 minute clip all the information that they got on a daily basis with Jesus. So that's where the challenge comes in. So if you're having trouble putting all the pieces together in the books, don't worry about it. Uh, it's, it's normal. Just keep with it and the Lord will show you things and you know, maybe listen to the message over and over again and, and you'll get it. So we covered extensively the, uh, what we know is the rapture, the tribulation, the antichrist, uh, his M.O. for coming up on the world scene, uh, the leader of the 10-nation European Federation that's in our future, uh, the Great Tribulation after he breaks his tre uh, peace treaty with Israel and declares war on her, uh, this Christ's second coming, and again, a lot of things that surrounded that. So we're going to jump into Matthew 24, but what I do want to do is, is just go back to verse... 28, briefly. So we see this, the lightning flashes, the Son of Man appears, everyone's going to see it, uh, he, the regathering of Israel, uh, some cataclysmic events in the, in the sky, in the atmosphere, and in verse 28 it says, wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Now this seems almost like a soliloquy or an aside, but what we see is that this is probably a reference to the battle of Armageddon when the Lord comes back in power and glory and, and defeats those, uh, those armies that are poised against Israel and then turn on him. Uh, if you look at Har Megiddo, it's a, basically a mount of Megiddo in Israel that's flat. Many battles actually have been fought there over the last few thousand years. And the one last epic battle will be fought there. Now, this brings me to Revelation 19 and Ezekiel 39, again, a future battle which both speak of such carnage that after the war is over, that the birds come down and feast on the dead. Not a pretty picture, but that's what we're going to see. Um, I do want to jump into briefly Ezekiel 39, because this again is a future battle in our future. Now this was predicted or prophesied 2,600 years ago, and I'll show you what's really fascinating about it. First off, if you look at your timeline, you'll see that where it says the 70th week of Daniel, where the pink is on the left and the blue is in the middle, 
uh, right at the tribulation start or maybe right after the rapture is the Ezekiel battle and you'll see it all the way down on the lower left hand side this is where they put it I'm not going to get dogmatic about it but it seems to make sense what's notable about this is that the this battle takes place and the Israelites it says specifically don't use wood for energy they don't use wood to burn because what they do is they take the weapons of the uh, offending armies and they start using that as energy for seven years now, fossil fuels burn pretty readily, and I don't care how much you brought with you to the battle, it's not going to last you seven years. Um, what's amazing about this is this can only point to nuclear-based exchange, fissile material, which can burn for that long or give energy. In addition, it speaks about a massive cleanup after the battle is over, right? A seven-month cleanup where that if a bone is found, markers are to be set up. Why? probably because of radioactivity, to keep away from that bone. Uh, when you start reading the Bible, it makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck because it says things about the future that there's no way the disciples could have ever known. The, the Apostle Peter speaks about the stoichia burning up. Uh, the stoichia, if you know science, there's something called uh, stoichiometry, which is a branch of physics and chemistry uh, based on that Greek word that that disciple used. He's speaking about things that are happening on the atomic level when they didn't have an electron microscope back then. The only way they would have known is that God would have told them. I love to sit with people who, who claim to stand on the bastion of science. I sit with them long enough and I'll say, there's plenty of science in this book. And this is, again, there's no way they could have known these things all those years ago. So it's very fascinating. Chuck Missler does a great job in uh, speaking about the cleanup uh, crew after this war. He says there's a parallel in the Bible to the Department of Defense manual in the United States of America when it comes to this type of cleanup. So, um, again, it doesn't get much better than this. Now, I'm just going to go through the, um, again, I'm not going to, it's the two very long chapters, and I wouldn't be able to even get through it today. But what's really striking about this future battle, again, predicted 2,600 years ago, is that there would be an alignment of nations. One of them is Russia, another one is Iran and a few scattered countries in North Africa. Um, question, when was the last time Russia and Iran teamed up for anything? In the last 10 years, they've been very cozy, but if you go back thousands of years, they were never friends. As a matter of fact, in World War II, the, the Iranians put their lot behind the Axis powers and the, the Russians were on the side of the Allies, so they were at enmity with each other. However, in the last 10 years, in our lifetime, they've become very close even bringing ambassadors back and forth between their countries and selling weapons to each other. Fascinating stuff. Now, I have to stop because it's very appropriate that Gustavo came up here and spoke about the Middle East. God is not against people. Let's understand that. There's a lot of, actually, my wife and I took in uh, an Iranian girl for a year. As a matter of fact, uh, some of her family threatened her with an honor killing, so we kind of took her in for a while to keep her safe. She was a wonderful kid. She's probably one of the best tenants we ever had. So the Iranians are good people. I mean, they're suffering just as much as we are, but they're suffering more under that oppressive re regime. So we're not against people, but God is against powers that rebel against him and try to destroy what he's set up. So we can't be nationalistic about this. We have to look at, at it for what it is. And there's a lot of people in those countries that will be saved. Now, let's add North Africa to the mix. A little history. 
1973, the Yom Kippur War, there were 15 countries allied against Israel, and she came out uh, victorious, which is pretty impressive. Uh, we know that there was largely a peace after that. Uh, however, I want to read an article to you that I just saw, and I hope that when you hear these messages and you look in the news, you say, wow, Pastor Joe just covered that. This is pretty fascinating. It says, so in Fox News, it says, the U.S. scrambles to ease tensions as Israel's ties with the allies erode, with their allies, or our allies. And I'll just read some excerpts. Uh, he says, the Obama administration is scrambling to contain an emerging diplomatic crisis in the Middle East as Israel's closest Muslim allies lash out at the country in a string of demonstrations some fear could jeopardize an already fragile peace. The latest flare-up occurred over the weekend when hundreds of protesters in Cairo, Egypt, stormed the Israeli embassy, forcing Israeli diplomats to flee. Some of you might have read this. That's one country. Here's another one. I'm going to skip down. To make matters worse, Turkey, earlier this month, moved to expel Israel's ambassador and downgrade diplomatic ties, escalating a long-simmering dis dispute over Israel's raid last year on a Gaza-bound Turkish ship. It's going to be a bad week for Israel, John Bolton, former U.S. ambassador to the United States, said. Skip down. This is part of the dark side of the Egyptian revolution, said Robert Satloff, director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Egypt-Israeli peace treaty in the, is the foundation of everything we've done in the Middle East for the past 30 years. You're back to zero point if that treaty falls apart. Now we're going to a third country. Turkey al-Faisal, a former Saudi ambassador to the U.S., wrote in the New York Times that his country would no longer be able to co cooperate with America in the same way it historically has if the U.S. opposes the state, statehood bid which is the whole thing that's in currently in the news, the Palestinian statehood. So a lot of these Muslim countries are lining up against Israel. The Bible spoke about it. Again, little by little, every year, there's ebbs and flows, but we're to a point where we can't go back 20, 30 years. We just keep putting, being pushed more forward into an arena of end times prophecy that we can't look back, we can't go back. Too much has been done so far. I've, and listen, we've changed regimes in Iraq. We've helped to change regimes in Libya. Uh, but you know what? Sometimes it's the lesser of the two evils. Some of these dictators are the lesser of the evil of radical Islam coming to power and taking over that country. As a matter of fact, I was reading real close. Keep your eye on Egypt and Libya and a lot of those North African countries. Radical Islam is wealthy. And they are starting to make inroads. As a matter of fact, in Libya, the rebels, a few times, they kind of rebuffed us after we gave them all that help. We always think they're going to be our friends, and it never turns out that way. They have in their constitution Sharia law. Now, Sharia law is very strict Islamic law. That is starting to make its inroads in Europe. Well, I see some lady from England. She's shaking her head. Uh, in Europe, in England, it is, it's, it's becoming part of their law. As a matter of fact, Sharia law is working its way into the United States. Some kooky judges are starting to consider this stuff. So my question to you, ladies, are you ready for Sharia law? You won't be able to drive a car, as in Saudi Arabia. You won't be able to be educated. And you'll be able to, if you come to, even if they allow you to come to service, you'll be wearing a burqa. 
That's Sharia law. So this stuff should really concern us. Now, let's go back to history. 1967, War of Attrition. 1973, Yom Kippur War. Russia was behind the powers that were protagonists against Israel. And now, North Africa is starting to turn radically Islamic, or they're really starting to make inroads there. All the, everything in the Bible is starting to line up. Now, why would they do this? Well, there's historical reasons, and there's also other reasons. Israel has found, under the Dead Sea, uh, oil. She's found natural gas, and they're starting to explore that. Now, the Dead Sea, I believe, is the lowest elevation on Earth. So if they find those oil veins, the concern is that some of those veins, veins underneath the ground, will, will go between countries. They don't know boundaries. They could start to, if she starts tapping that oil, it could start to pull from her surrounding Arab neighbor countries. That's going to start problems now, isn't it? Right? Black gold. It's all starting to line up. And the, we have to be encouraged over this, not frightened. And I'm going to kind of cover that. This isn't to scare us. It's to just show us we're in very interesting times. Uh, it was a, a quote that says, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And all along, the Bible has predicted these things. Now, Ezekiel 38, very interesting, with the alignment of countries that are support Israel, they support her, but they're really not supporting her that much. Ezekiel 38 mentions countries in the Arabian Peninsula, Saudi Arabia, friendly countries, moderate Arabs, so to speak, to the Western powers. It mentions Western Europe and possibly the United States, depending on how you interpret some of those names. They are all powerless or willless. They say, why have you come to invade Israel? Have you come to take plunder? Questions, you know, that's not fair. You know, we support Israel. You really shouldn't be marching down to Israel. However, they're willless or powerless to stop the invasion. Now, reasons. Number one, Western powers may be tired of war. We're starting to become very weary of these wars. We can't finance them. Is it possible that the Western powers will become isolationists and just kind of turn the blind eye to what happens in the Middle East? Again, the Bible's predicting these things. Uh, possibly the rapture of the saved. Many Christians who are part of uh, the government or in Europe, in uh, Western Europe, the United States, and you know, we're starting to wonder where do all these people go. We can't be worrying about that invasion right now. We've got a crisis on our hands. Interesting conjecture. Now, let me jump into the rest of the story here. So the context is we spoke about the tribulation. We spoke about the Antichrist. We spoke about some of these wars um, there's going to be several epic battles in our, in our future that the Bible speaks about that really take place in the majority in the area of the Middle East, Israel. So verse 32 in Matthew 24, Jesus takes a break and he says, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near. At the very doors, assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things are fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Parable of the fig tree. Jesus seems to take a little break and he says, look at the indicators. Jesus gave specifics. Jesus gave frequency and intensity of some of these storms and earthquakes and things that are happening. And then he takes a break and says, start looking at those indi indicators. 
Now, I guess the question that we might ask is, what about those guys who set dates for the end of the world? And I, I go on this a lot, but this is what this chapter is focusing on. Why doesn't God, if he loves us so much and we're his children, why doesn't God set a date? I'll tell you why. Because as people, we like loopholes. Look at the legal system. There's not one law, whether civil or criminal or so forth, that we don't try to work our way around. If God said, well, the end of the world is going to happen January 1st, 2012, and he didn't say that, I'm just, it's just an example, what would happen? Maybe all the way up until that time, the night before, everybody would be sinning like crazy and getting plannings that the night before, we're all going to get on our knees and say, Lord, I'm so sorry, I repent, accept me into the kingdom. In essence, getting the, both, the best of both worlds. Now, what about Christians? <laughs> I think there'd be some Christians doing that too. Because as, as mankind, as selfish man, we want to get as much as we can get. We want to get it, and it's not right. We want to get as much as we can get from the world. And then we want everything that God has to offer. And God just wants us to, to follow him. He wants it to permeate our being. He wants us to be like this all the time. See, we justify things as human beings, even as Christians. I've heard the arguments come to me about why a person is doing some sin or leaving their spouse or whatever the case may be. And I've heard all kinds of crazy reasons that are completely against scriptural. Because, well, it's, it, these rules are good for everyone else except for my situation. It's unique, right? So that's a problem. So Jesus is saying this. As we can discern the change in seasons based on the changes of the fig tree, we look at the fig tree, we know that the fig tree does certain things based on the season. So we look at her and we see that we know that fall's coming or spring is coming. By the same token, Jesus is saying that we can look at spiritual seasons based on the indicators on the earth. That's what he's been telling us all along in Matthew chapter 24, hasn't he? Something we need to pay attention to. Now, some will look at this and say, I don't know if I, I buy it completely. I guess I could see the, and many of you have probably heard this, that what Jesus is saying is the generation that says, sees Israel become a nation will see uh, the end times. It's interesting, but I don't know if it's, it's a complete connection there. Um, 1948, Israel became a nation. But it wasn't until 1967 that Israel gained biblical Jerusalem, making her really complete. Now, I was born in 67, so that means if that's true, that my generation will see some very interesting things if we don't die an untimely death. Some other ways of looking at this is, because sometimes prophecy can be a little nebulous. Uh, God purposely doesn't make it extremely clear uh, because, again, he doesn't want us to set dates. Um, you know, First Peter is, speaks about that. The other thing that this could be, we can be looking at here is that the Middle East is a prophetic indicator. So keep your eyes on the Middle East, especially Israel. Again, sometimes as Westerners, we're myopic. We think everything revolves around the United States, but we're just a small part geographically. And if you look at our, our landmass compared to the entire world, our population, we're really not the center of the world. It's kind of little self-centered ideas. Things are happening in the Middle East that we need to pay attention to. Now, this gets interesting because as the United States and the Western powers today, remember that little kerfuffle between Obama and Netanyahu? And they were trying to be diplomatic, but you could see what was going on under that. That wasn't too long ago. The more the Western powers start to pull away from Israel and kind of leave her on her own, that's really a good indicator of... because. In the end times, this battle, this invasion of Israel, God is the only one helping her. 
There's not a man on the planet that's helping her. It's the Lord himself, because the, the, her allies have largely abandoned her. It's all in here. Um, another way to look at this is that the, those going through this period, those who see these things uh, in the tribulation period, it's an encouragement to, the, to hang on because they will see the second coming. All right? And then another way to look at this as well, and you can see a lot of things wrapped in this, is that the beginning of these signs mean the Lord's permanent return is imminent. The kingdom is coming. Verse 35. Now we do pray, don't we, uh, in the Our Father, your kingdom come as it is in heaven. Right? We want that. So if we're really saying that in prayer, we have to believe that his kingdom is coming eventually. This can't go on forever, and we talked about that last Sunday. Verse 35, Jesus says, my words will not pass away, but basically everything else will. Now, why does he have to say that to believers? Well, because unfortunately, sometimes even believers get so caught up in this world that they, again, want to pick and choose what they like out of the scripture. And there are some whole denominations that never go through the Bible because they kind of like to preach their favorite parts. But that's taking the easy way out. It's the easy way out. Paul said, the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 20, he knew his death was imminent. He said, I have not shunned to teach you the whole counsel of God. That's why we go through the entire Bible, because it, it eliminates that denominationalism. It eliminates those uh, pet doctrines and the ones that we don't want to cover. We go through the entire scripture. The whole counsel of God is what we're looking for here. As earth dwellers, sometimes our priorities are reversed. We look at the tangible world as something that's always going to be here, but the truth is the world that we don't see is the one that's going to be eternal, and we're going to spend the most of our time there. So God's word and God's plans will never pass away, but all this stuff will, according to the scripture. We move on. I just want to read two scriptures in a parallel gospel in Luke 21 that, that speak about this situation. Two verses. Luke 21, verse 28. Jesus says, Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. Aren't we redeemed? Aren't we sealed with the Holy Spirit? Yes. But it's not the full redemption. Why? That was a down payment because we still sin. We shouldn't sin. We're not perfected yet. So we're redeemed but the process isn't completed yet, right? There will be a point in time where we won't have to struggle with sin because we won't sin anymore. That's when the Lord will have perfected us. Another scripture in verse 31 of Luke 20, I'm sorry, yeah, 21, 31. Jesus says, so you likewise, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. Do we live like we believe what we say when we pray in the Our Father, do we act like we believe the kingdom of God is near? What have we done in the last few months? You know, Out of 168 hours in a week, how much time have we devoted to God? And if maybe we missed church a few times, did we make up that time in just personal prayer? Some of us have. Some personal prayer, devotional life, reflecting, or just thinking about the Lord. You know, what's interesting is that, and let me just say this, I, I need to pray more, too. What I love about Billy Graham's last interview is he said, I should have prayed more, and I should have read the Bible more, and I should have traveled less. 
You know, I respect that. Uh, Every pastor, every person can read more, can pray more, can contemplate God more. You know, when we fall in love with someone and and there's an infatuation, we want to see them all the time. You know, three-hour phone calls, you know, texting all the time. We, We also can have a relationship with the Lord and be thinking about him that much too. Are we in love with the Lord? Has that waned? Again, out of 168 hours in a week, how much time do we really devote to the Lord? I read a study that the average prayer time uh, is between five, right around five minutes a day. 24 hours a day, the average Christian prays five minutes. I don't know how they figure that out, but it was interesting to read. Um, what, is, what is God's desire for my life? And, and do I want that to be met? Verse 36. But of the day and hour, no one knows, no, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the son of man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the son of man be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. So we spoke about the tribulation. We spoke about the fact that you can count from the break of the treaty, from the Antichrist to Israel. You know, uh, Daniel speaks about it. Revelation speaks about it. You can literally count until the second coming of the Lord. So how is he saying here that you don't know? Well, this is a new subject. The Lord spoke about the destruction of Jerusalem 40 years before it happened. The Lord told the disciples about the end times. The Lord told the disciples about the future of Israel. And then the Lord told them about the tribulation and, and the second coming. So what's he talking about now? What he's talking about is the event, it's a new subject, that kicks off that last seven-year period of the tribulation. It's so great because God is a God of order. This stuff makes a lot of sense. Amen. (laughs) Now, what happened in the days of Noah, the antediluvian period, the period before the great deluge or the great flood? Marrying, giving and marrying, working, doing different things. What he's saying is it's a state of normalcy. Everyone's just going on with their business. And then the flood came and took them all away. And they laughed at Noah, you know. And Jesus refers back to Genesis. For those that call themselves Christians and say that Genesis was an allegory, you know, the attacks on the Bible, most of the attacks come from the first book to the first book in Genesis and the last book of, of Revelation. That's where most of the attacks come. Christ here is referring back to Genesis as a historical fact. We need to understand that. So what happens is they're just kind of minding their own business. They're going about their life, not thinking about the Lord. And then all of a sudden people start disappearing. What's that all about? Let me read to you 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. Starting with verse 13. This is the kickoff event, which we understand as the rapture, that comes before this awful time, this great hour of of trial on the earth, the great hour of wrath. Verse 13, this is the apostle, the apostle Paul speaking to the Thessalonians who thought 
that the Lord had come and they missed it. They were relatively, I guess, new Christians. Uh, Jesus, his teachings were fresh and new and everybody was trying to put them all together and some of the Christians who didn't know a whole lot were scared because some of the false teachers were coming in and saying, hey, the Lord came and you guys missed it. So they were scared. So the Apostle Paul writes them a letter and he reassures them. Listen to the way he says about comforting each other. So let me start with 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Now, this is a euphemistic term for those who have died. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Who are the others? The world. The world goes to a funeral. Uh, They see death. They worry about death. And because they don't put their lot in with the Lord, there's no hope there. But we have hope because God says that we're eternal beings. We're going to live forever. Verse 14, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have died in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's an order here. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up I'm going to go back to that word, caught up, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So after this event, believers will never be separated from the Lord again. We will always be with him throughout eternity. Verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. This isn't supposed to frighten us, this is supposed to comfort us, because the Lord loves us and he's going to come back for us. Chapter 5, remember, When the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, there were no chapter delineations, so I'm going to continue. Now watch this dichotomy between the personal pronouns. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. That's not important. It's not for you to know. For you yourselves know that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, which means you would know when it comes. For when they say, now watch this, the pronouns change. We to they, he's speaking about the world, the rebellious world, the ones who don't believe in the resurrection, the ones who have said, you know, I don't want to do that. I want to just live my life on this earth. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. You see the difference between them and us? We are comforted. And anybody could be a part of that today, the end of service. Right now, you give your heart to the Lord. You know, it's not an elite club. Everyone can do it. Jesus loves us all. Anyone out in the street, anyone in Jamesburg, anyone, you know? So let's understand that. And that's his desire for us all to come into the fold, the Bible tells us. But you, back to the believer, brethren, are not in darkness that this day should overtake you as a thief. Overtake. Okay? Overtake. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Let's be paying attention. Let's be living our faith. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. That is our hope. Not our 401ks, not our retirement plans. The hope is salvation, okay? When the heart stops beating and the brain flatlines, this is our hope. For God did not appoint us to wrath. Wait, because they, sudden destruction, but us, we're not appointed to wrath. We're covered under the blood of Christ. But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, whether we're awake or we have died, 
We should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. This is the second time he says that. This is for comfort. The more we understand God's plan, the more we are comforted, the more we're assured. I can read this stuff without a twinge of being scared because I know what the Lord has planned for me. And you know what's amazing? Life is a gift. Oftentimes I go to sleep at night and just before I go to bed, I'm like, Lord, can I have another day with my family? I don't deserve that day. I don't deserve to wake up in the morning. Life is a gift. And then I'm going to get, not only did Jesus give me abundant life in John chapter 10, but I also get eternal life. I mean, how do you not do cartwheels when you understand God's plan for us? This is exciting. Let me go back to, because the doctrine of the rapture, which is in the scripture, is under attack. So let me help to explain what this means. And I'm going to change the word rapture. Watch this. In 1 Thessalonians 4.17, it says, We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It's not a zombie movie. The dead in Christ don't go up you know, all tattered. This is something that's a joyous occasion. We're, we're, we're fully, you know, we're completed. We come up to be with the Lord. We see our relatives who are in Christ. And there's no more death after that. Now, the word caught up is, in the Greek, it's harpazo. That means to pluck up. The Lord just scoops us up when the time is right. We won't know when. He's just going to do it. We call it the rapture. And we shouldn't call it the rapture because a lot of people say rapture is not in the Bible. They're right. Rapture isn't in the Bible. Rapture is a transliteration from a Latin word, which means the same thing. So in the Latin text, somebody said rapture and and it's stuck. But really the word is harpazo for those who are complaining about the word. And I hear this over and over again. You know, a rose by any other name would still smell as sweet, right? Matthew twenty-five forty. Let me jump back to Matthew because that's where we started. Or Matthew twenty-four forty. Excuse me. He says two men will be in the field. One will be taken, and the other left. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Except from another angle. That Greek word is paralambano which means to receive near or to associate with oneself. So that's, again, another picture of the same harpazo. The Lord receives us near to him. You know, two people, you know, maybe a bunch of people will be at church and a few will still be sitting there and hopefully the pastor and the majority of people will be gone. So, you know, (laughs) hopefully, no. Put your lot in with the Lord today. So don't be one of those people that are still sitting here. Um, In every church, there are going to be some that just have not submitted their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's a fact. However, two people will be at work, two people will be grinding at the mill, two people will be at the store, at stop and shop or whatever, you know, um, a lot of empty carts with with, uh, groceries in them. I've talked to some of my fellow officers about this, and I'm like, cops hate accident reports. So here's a little incentive. There's going to be a lot of cars that are driverless, crashing into each other. I'm going to be gone. You guys are going to be taking all the reports. Bye. <laughs> so <laughs> there you go. But this is similar to the Passover in Egypt. The Passover was a type of the rapture, where if you were covered under the blood of that innocent lamb and it was on the lintel and the doorpost, you know, the, the judgment would pass over you. It wouldn't affect your house. So this, we see this over and over again in the scriptures, just the, the culmination of all those types, especially in the Old Testament. Verse 42, I want to read this again. He says, watch therefore, for you do not know 
what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. So, I'm going to jump to Luke 21 again, because he hits it from another angle. Luke 21, 34. The Lord says... But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing or dissipation. That's a negative. Drunkenness, that's a negative. And the cares of this life, that can be a positive. And that day come upon you unexpectedly. So even good things, if we idolize them and we put them above God, are not good things anymore. If the cares of this life and uh, your life and the things that you want to do or I want to do, our self-directed ways, becomes too much of an idol and God is just kind of left in the background, he's saying be careful of that. For it will come as a snare or a trap on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And if we look at the timeline, we see a parallel path. The same pink on the left, blue in the middle, orange at the end. There's a path for the world that just flatlines all the way across. And they go through these awful times and then the judgment. And then you have the path for the believer who's covered under the blood, the Passover. The New Testament Passover. Up and to be with the Lord, the marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, rewards given out for Christian service, joy, happiness, um, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And you know what? We get to choose which path we take. It's that simple. But as human beings, we can be so obstinate. I know I was for many years. It was right there for the taking. And I, I let a lot of years go by before I finally made the right decision. And some of you may be there today. Let's look at this. Be mindful that we make the things of God a lifestyle and not a lifeline. That sounds very similar. Lifestyle, lifeline. See, here's a lifeline. I ignore God. I don't really think about him. I kinda, I'm a barely a nominal Christian. I do come to church, maybe for the wrong reasons, and I'm really in trouble now. But I've never developed a relationship with the Lord. And I'm begging the Lord. All of a sudden, I'm on my knees. I'm praying, Lord, please get me out of this situation. That's a lifeline. That's not what we're looking for. Right? We're not looking for the, you know, the, the lifesaver thrown over the board to, and hoping that we, we get pulled to safety. We need to make the things of God a lifestyle. Just incorporate it into our lives. We all have routines, right? We incorporate it into our life. Not that it's a chore, not that, oh, Pastor Joe said I have to do this, he's going to be checking with me next month. None of that stuff. It becomes a lifestyle. It becomes part of who you are. It permeates your, your every being. And it's, it's fun. It's a blessing. So again, not a lifeline, but a lifestyle. Let me just stop for a minute and just give a little dichotomy between the second coming and the harpazo. We'll start calling it now. Number one, the harpazo. The Lord catches us up to meet him in the air. Because if you don't know the differences, when someone tries to teach you eschatology or things of the end times, you're going to be confused. You're like, wait a minute, I thought, I, mean, I thought we could count it. So, Harpazo, Lord catches us up to meet him in the air. The second coming is the Lord touches down on the earth. We see that in Zechariah. He stands on the Mount of Olives and it splits in two. Harpazo, he never leaves the clouds. We come to him. The second point, no one knows the day or the hour. 
right? There were false conversions, which is probably one of the biggest reasons. Uh, two, the second coming can be knowing the day of the hour. As a matter of fact, Daniel and Revelation give you the year, the month, and the day till the uh, broken treaty, the great tribulation, till the end and the second coming. So one, the harpazo, we don't know. It could happen today. It could happen 10 years from now. The third point, the harpazo is for safety and protection. Make no mistake, the second coming is for judgment. Fourth, the harpazo saints are called from earth to Christ to heaven. And if you read Revelation 19, the second coming, the saints are with the Lord in heaven to back to the earth because of judgment and we're following him. So that should make it clear in the scriptures to support that. Verse 45, the last few verses. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give him food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware of and cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's pretty powerful, pretty powerful. And, and I love his, his parables because in my mind, I try to picture this, you know, the servant, uh, he's a servant too, but he's kind of the head servant and the master leaves and maybe the master wanted to come back a little sooner and he doesn't realize it. And he's treating his fellow servants who he has authority over badly. And then the master says, what, what did I walk into? What are you doing? And he removes him. Now, this is a picture, you can look at this as uh, ministers, shepherds. We saw that in, in Israel, and we certainly see it in the church today. But it's not limited to preachers and pastors. Every single Christian has a responsibility towards the Lord. Every one of us has been given a spiritual gift. Maybe some of us were too new, we haven't recognized it yet. Uh, we do have some type of uh, responsibility, right? So let's look at this, not just for me, but for everybody here. 47, he says that the good one will get, become ruler over his goods. Now, this could be a reference to the kingdom age or the millennium. So maybe in the sense when the thousand-year reign comes, he'll put certain believers in certain positions. I've already put my prayer request in. You know, I want to be somewhere on the Mediterranean, you know, <laughs> eating goat cheese and olive oil and getting the rays and beautiful beach. Oh, Lord, please. I don't know if I'll be the president. I want to be the president of Greece or something like that, but... We'll see what he does. I put in my request. Verse 48. Uh, the one wicked servant says, my master is delaying his coming. This attitude is either A, he doesn't believe everything that God says. Because think about it. God says something in his word. If we say, no, that's not true. How do we call ourselves Christians? We have to accept the bitter and the sweet in the scripture. And we don't say, well, I just don't like that part of God's word. It's God's word. The other uh, possibility is that the believer has been in the world so long that they become worldly and materialistic, right? But they're not behaving properly. Verse 49, he says, he begins to beat his fellow servants and get drunk. Poor theology leads to poor behavior. Understand that. Poor theology leads to poor behavior. And verse 50, he says, the master or the Lord will come unexpectedly. How many times have we seen this? And I always said, if something is repeated in the scripture, we ought to take heed to it. And in verse 51, he'll be cut in two, the wicked one, and appointed with the hypocrites. 
even if it calls itself Christian, the Lord knows the heart. Matthew 7 is probably the scariest verse or verses that the uh, Christian will ever read where Jesus says, many will come to me saying, I did miracles, cast out demons, prophesied in your name, and Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Frightening. Do we know him? Do we know him? Now listen, when you live a lifestyle of knowing the Lord, it doesn't mean you have to be perfect. I'm not perfect. I still have to repent every day for things that I do or think or say. Uh, but it means that it's a, it's a relationship that we have with him. So if we, we could say, well, I kind of know Jesus. Well, in the judgment, when we stand before him, will he smile and say, yeah, I knew you? Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Or will he say, refresh my memory. When do we get together? When do we talk? You know, I like to paraphrase. The truth is that we don't glory in the destruction of the lost. God's will is that everyone would be saved. We need to be praying for the lost, like Gustavo said when he was up here, uh, to go to incredible lengths to reach the lost wherever they are and give them the love of Christ. Show them what salvation is all about. Now, the rest of the story, I'm not going to go into detail because uh, our revelation studies did such a great job. Number one, the Lord's second coming restores much-needed order on the earth. Uh, The Lord rules for a thousand years. Satan is bound at this time. Uh, Satan is released. One last rebellion is put down by the Lord. Uh, Satan is cast in the lake of fire, which is really hell, uh, what we understand in eternity, where the the Antichrist and the false prophet have already been judged, uh, where his angels are going and those who rebel against him. Uh... Satan, or excuse me, the great white throne judgment of the wicked happens in, in, in this order, according to Revelation. Uh, again, the lake of fire for those who have rebelled against the Lord, uh, where Satan and his followers already are. New heaven and new earth, all this stuff gets burned up and he starts over again. He makes it perfect like it was in the Garden of Eden. A beautiful earth and you know, no problems, no earthquakes, none of that stuff. Um, eternity of bliss and fun like we've never had because we're in the presence of the Lord. The Bible tells us in Revelation 21, there'll be no more crying, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. And most of all, we will be with our Heavenly Father who can outshine the best Father that we've ever had on this earth by uh, a logarithmic number. Okay? So where do we go from here? Well, it says to be watchful and not fearful. So we shouldn't be afraid when we read this because we know that God has a great plan. He has our best interests at heart. But with that encouragement becomes responsibility and application. Every believer has a responsibility and needs to apply themselves. And I like to kind of do it. Could we, there's an expression, putting God in a box. Of course, we couldn't put God in a box. But sometimes by our actions, we try to, as if he was a genie in the bottle. We have our boxes. You know, we have our little box, our kids, sports, vacations, making money, educational pursuits, and there's all these boxes lined up. And unfortunately for many, God, they try to squeeze them in a little box and put them and make them equal with the rest of those boxes. There's, no, there's not a lot of application. There's not a lot of priority. Right? God wants to be Lord of all. Otherwise, he's not Lord at all. And there's a lot of Christians that need to heed this because they're living as the world lives with a little Jesus kind of trailer at the end of it, and that's not right. 
Mark 13, 33 through 37 says, don't be caught sleeping. Now, of course, if, if the Lord came and it was two in the morning, it, that's not what he means. You know, you're in your bed and you wake up, oh man, I missed it. Somebody should have woken me up. What he means is sleeping spiritually. There are a lot of believers who are sleeping. They're asleep at the wheel. And when tragedy comes, sometimes they're quick to blame God for that tragedy because they're not prepared. Listen, there's a lot of scriptures that are encouraging. This one is sobering. Um, and sometimes we don't want to hear it. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, last week, my wife said there's a bunch of wasps that made, I know a lot of you have, have dealt with them. There's like a hole in the ground and they, they come ground wasp and they're really nasty. And she said, you better do something, someone's going to get stung. Well, she said that a few times to me, and you know, I'm a beekeeper, so I guess in my pride, I'm like, babe, I know what I'm doing here. Well, sure enough, she was right, and I got, they got me. <laughs> but we're not talking about getting stung here. You know, maybe our, our hair goes up, maybe our pride goes up, maybe I don't like what that pastor's saying from the pulpit. I'm, I'm offended by it. It's rubbing me the wrong way. This isn't about getting stung by a few wasps, this is about our eternal security. So we need to be sober, we need to be watchful, we need to not be sleeping. And the truth is, if we are, don't expect the Lord to use us to win the lost, and don't expect um, a great reception when we go to see the Lord. So be watchful, but not fearful. Let's pray.